Welcome everyone. It is Monday, June the 17th, 2019. It is currently 5.43 p.m. Central Time. Well, this is an impromptu recording. I was sitting here at my dining room table. I was working on a few things and all of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden, I felt frustration. I felt anger and I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pick up the iPad, hit record, and I'm going to express myself so that everyone else can listen. And I hope that by listening to me express my frustration and my anger, it will benefit you a little bit. Now, you may be thinking, what are you frustrated about? What are you angry about? Did you see something on the news? Oh, no, 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 no. No, I'm not even watching the news. I'm not even listening to the news. I'm sitting here at my dining room table. I have three Bibles open, two notebooks, two pencils, and a Bible commentary. (laughs) Oh, yes. I have a Bible commentary in my hands right now. In fact, I need to I need to set it down because I'm going to throw this Bible commentary halfway across the house. In fact, what I may do is open the front door and just toss the Bible commentary. Now, if you've been listening to me for any length of time, you've listened to my sermons, you've listened to my podcast, you know that I have a a complicated relationship with Bible commentaries, okay? I've stated over and over and over again how frustrated Bible commentaries make me, how angry they make me. And at times I will even, you know, while I'm preaching, I'll read from a Bible commentary and then I'll pretend that I'm throwing it across the room or I'll toss it over to the the nearest pew because I just get so frustrated with them. So we're going to call this episode, this impromptu recording, Why I Hate Bible commentaries. Now, because this is an impromptu recording, I want to make sure everyone knows, I'm just sitting here at my dining room table. Um, there's a million things right now that could, that could uh, distract you while you're listening to me. Sounds in the background. It could be a dog. It could be a cat. I, did, I, I didn't try to move everything to a, 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 more, you know, a, a more soundproof area, a place that would sound more professional. No, this is me sitting at my dining room table ready to express to you my true Feelings. All right. I didn't. I didn't stop to write notes. I'm just. I'm just impromptu. I'm just going to talk. All right. Are you ready? All right. I think we're going to do this. Why I hate Bible commentaries. Well, let's start with why so many people use Bible commentaries. It usually goes something like this: Once upon a time, and a galaxy far. Okay, wait. We don't have to do all of that. But it usually starts that someone becomes a Christian and praise God. They repent, they place their faith in Jesus Christ, they're trusting in him alone. Praise God, yes, you know, we, that's always a wonderful thing. And once they become a Christian, they, they learn relatively quick that the word of God, that the Bible is of the utmost importance. It is the inspired word of God. It is our source of truth. It is our authority. It is the word of God. And that as Christians, we are to cherish the Bible, study the Bible, and read the Bible. So they're like, okay, I'm a Christian. Man, I need to know what God is trying to tell me in his word. I'm going to start reading it. I'm going to start studying it. And so they sit down and start reading the Bible. And it takes, I don't know. I don't know how long it takes. It doesn't take very long. I would, I would think for most people, it doesn't take very long for you to start reading going, uh, what is going on? Wait, who is that? Wait, where is that? How do you say that word? Okay, wait, what is going on? Okay, I, I don't understand. I, I just read, I read all of the, I read all of the book, I read all of that chapter, and I don't really know what it means. I need some help. 
And so maybe that new Christian asks a pastor, and they say, Pastor, how, how do I understand the Bible? And there's a very high, there's a very good chance, high probability that the pastor will say, you need to get some good Bible commentaries, right? So that Christian's like, okay, where do I get Bible commentaries? Well, you can get on Amazon. You can get a, a Christian book distributors online. If you still have in your town, maybe a thing of the past, but if you still have an actual Christian bookstore, you can go there and get a Bible commentary. So that new Christian is like, okay, I'm off to get some Bible commentaries. And they get some Bible commentaries, maybe on individual books, maybe on the entire Bible, maybe on just the Old Testament, maybe just on the New Testament. And this is what that new Christian does. They're reading the Bible. Hmm, I don't get that. Look to their commentary. Oh, this is what they say. That must be the interpretation. So they start relying on Bible commentaries. It becomes the default tool. Now, they may be using commentaries like in this way. They have a study Bible, and they're using the notes. Well, that's, that's a commentary. They're using a Bible commentary of some sort. Maybe they hop online. You know, that's more 2019. There's Bible commentaries all online. You can find who knows how many Bible commentaries. So they'll, they'll look up a passage, find a commentary, a Bible commentary, and go, oh, that's what that passage means. But... New Christians are almost always introduced to Bible commentaries very early on, and it becomes their default tool, and they become, they become dependent upon them. And you know why they're dependent upon Bible commentaries? Because their church that they attend never bothers to sit them down and to teach them how to actually study the Bible. They don't give them methods of Bible study. They don't teach them, not, not only do they not teach them how to study, they don't teach them how to interpret the Bible. They're not going to teach them hermeneutics. They're not going to teach them methods of interpretation. No, 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 no. Because churches have got more important things to do, right? Fellowships, activities, I don't know. But they're not going to train anyone in any meaningful way. Oh, they may have a little, you know, how to study the Bible. Read it. Highlight it. You know, read it with yourself in mind. I mean, like, you know, some just very generic. It's not even true Bible study methods. It's just horrible. So Christians become, therefore, dependent on Bible commentaries and dependent upon listening to what other pastors say because they don't know how to actually study the Bible for themselves. So Bible commentaries are typically a part of any Christian who studies the Bible at all. At all. You know, there's some Christians who I don't think they even own Bible commentaries. They never even use them. I have no idea why. I guess because they don't study the Bible. But if you actually study the Bible, Bible commentaries are a part of your life. They have been a part of my life since the first, first or second week after my salvation. Because the first book I bought wasn't a commentary, it was a systematic theology, and then the next book I bought, I believe, was a commentary. So, but I was borrowing commentaries from my pastor's office within the first week of salvation, maybe the second week. It was early on. And I thought, these things are great. These things are awesome. But here's what happened. Something changed, Right? If you become a person who learns how to study the Bible, if you become a person who learns hermeneutics, methods of interpretation, you're going to find yourself very quickly becoming frustrated with Bible commentaries, irritated with Bible commentaries. You'll start getting the opinion that maybe Bible commentaries are not even really worth the paper they're written on. They're not even worth the cover that the pages are placed in between. You'll start thinking that maybe Bible commentaries only serve as, I don't know, they're kind of heavy. Maybe I need it to, you know, uh, you know use it to, to hold something up, maybe to set to hold something down. I, who knows what you'll, you'll start using them for, but you'll realize really quick, 
Many of them are a waste of time. And here's the reason many of them are a waste of time. Many of them are nothing more than a famous pastor preaches sermons. People gather those sermons. They hire an editor. The editor goes through those sermons, takes the information, places it in a written form. They call it a commentary, but really all it is is the sermons of the famous pastor, okay? That sometimes that's basically all they are. They, it's like, okay, it's, it's basically like reading sermons. It's not really a commentary per se. Sometimes the commentaries are useless because they don't actually comment on the passages that you need them to comment on, on the ones that are really difficult. Or if they do comment on the difficult passages, they say wonderful things like this. This is a very complicated passage, and there are many interpretations. Next verse, or in some cases, they just skip the complicated verse. Or they'll, they'll comment on the complicated verse, ignoring the complication in the verse. Oh, man. Bible commentaries sometimes drive you crazy. But I always feel bad because many Christians don't know how to determine if what they're reading in a commentary is accurate. They don't know how to determine if it's true. But once you learn how to study the Bible, once you learn Bible hermeneutics, you start picking up, wait a minute, is this accurate? Is So this is what I want to do. I could sit here and express to you all day my history of the commentaries. I, I could express to you why they're useless. I, I mean, I've given you kind of some background. I've kind of laid a foundation. But here's what I want to do. I, I kind of want to demonstrate why I am frustrated right now with the commentary that I have in front of me. But I'm going to kind of place this in your hands for you to determine if my frustration with this commentary is warranted or if I'm just blowing this out of proportion. Okay? Because you may say, well, you know, that's, that's, you know, Trevor and his typical hyperbole. I know I use hyperbole, but maybe, just maybe, maybe, I'm, I'm, uh, I have a right to be frustrated with this commentary, all right? Now, I am, I'm 100%, I mean, I know this, this is a fact. I can prove to you the problems with commentaries. I mean, we could sit down for an hour, I could bring out, you know, stacks of commentaries and show you problems with them. In this particular case, you may not be convinced that my frustration is warranted. Maybe my frustration is based off my ongoing frustration, and so it's just showing up again with this one. Or maybe you're going to go, wow, now that you point that out, maybe I need to question every time I read a commentary. I don't know what we're going to succeed here, but I wanted to share it with you, so here we go. All right, I was studying the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And I'm going to read it here. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. I've got to move this commentary out of my way. I'm trying to hold an iPad and record. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. We read these words. I'm reading from the King James. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Read that again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Well, verse 18 introduces this idea of the wrath of God. All right. So I wrote down on my, paper, my uh, notes here, God's wrath, God's wrath. And I'm like, okay, I need to start studying uh, this, the subject of God's wrath. So I started doing some work in the Greek, started doing some different things about the, the wrath of God, trying to find cross-references. And after spending a considerable amount of time, I went and picked up 
MacArthur's New Testament commentary on Romans chapter 1, uh, Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 8. And I turn to page 60, page 60. And um, at, at the top of the page, you have kind of the uh, finishing the paragraph from the previous page. And then all of a sudden you start this new section. It's in bold, the word wrath. Whoa, okay, I have the word wrath. Now they give you the Greek word here, right? Um, the transliteration is O-R-G-E, I believe. I think that's the transliteration, yes, O-R-G-E. And so MacArthur gives you the Greek word. He has the word wrath and bold in parentheses. And then he's now going to give you what he is, what, which the commentary seems to indicate would be the definition or meaning of the word wrath, the, the, of, the, of the Greek word translated wrath in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And this is what it says. Wrath refers to a settled, determined indignation, not to the momentary, emotional, and often uncontrolled anger to which human beings are prone. All right, that's, that sounds good, right? Now, if I wanted to preach that, I could, I could write those notes, and when I go to church on Sunday, I could look smart. Hey, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed. All right, let's study the wrath of God. Let's begin with a definition. Now, the Greek word here for wrath, it, it refers to a settled, determined indignation, not to the momentary, emotional, um, and an often uncontrolled anger to which human beings are prone. I could write that down, I could sound really smart, and I could go, look, I, I know the meaning of that Greek word. Here's the question, though. Is that accurate? Now, I'm not arguing that the wrath of God would obviously, it would demand, because God is different than us, that the wrath of God would be different than the anger of men. We're not questioning that because logically, theologically, we know that God's attributes, whatever attribute, whatever attribute we discuss about God, if that attribute is similar to anything that we experience, God is love, we love, God gets angry, we, we get angry, we have to understand God's uh, attributes are perfect for he is perfect, for he is holy, and we are sinful, so we... Our, our understanding or those, those same attributes that we demonstrate are not going to be perfect. We, we, can, we can argue that from a theological perspective. But he's making the argument from a definition of a word, right? So he's got the Greek word there, again, the transliteration, O-R-G-E. And he says, again, it refers to a settled Determined indignation, not to the momentary emotional and often uncontrolled anger to which human beings are prone. Now, how do you test that? Now, you can just re rely on MacArthur, but how do you test it? Well, if you have the Blue Letter Bible, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the ability to figure this out. Go, go to the Blue Letter Bible and type in the word wrath. Go down to where you see Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Click on Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Go to the interlinear. Find the Greek word for wrath. Determine if MacArthur is citing the correct Greek word. Then read the definition provided with the Greek tools for this Greek word and see if it sounds anything like MacArthur just defined. Then you can do this. 
Look at every place that Greek word is used in the New Testament. Look at them. Does it always, does this Greek word always refer to a settled, determined indignation, not to the momentary emotional and often uncontrolled anger to which human beings are prone? In other words, that's almost implying that the Greek word translated wrath in Romans 1.18 always refers to God's wrath. It's never used to refer to the anger of men. Is that accurate? Is that true? All right. In fact, I'm going to walk to the other part of the house right now. I'm going to walk to the other part of the house. To my other iPad. All right. I'm just going to do this really quick. Oh, here it, here it is. Okay. Here's Blue Letter Bible. I've got the interlinear open. Strong's G, 3709. Arge. 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 Now, now we can even say it right. Arge, right? And you know what's funny? Just from a pastor standpoint, um, you can study Greek. You can try to learn how to speak it. And unless you just do it all the time. You know, uh, and and if you're not proficient at languages, you just, you just struggle. But um, or gay or or gay or however you want to pronounce it. But but um, you can sit here and listen to it, right? Strong's G thirty-seven oh nine, gay. gay, right? Are gay, all right. So you can sit here and practice are gay, and then you get to the pulpit. You get to the pulpit, and you're like you're you're preaching and you're preaching, and because now you're preaching before you get to the word. When you finally get there, you're like, oh wait, how do you say that? Are gay, are gay, are gay, and then then you mispronounce it, and then you go home and listen to your sermon, and then you're embarrassed. Okay, but sometimes you just I'm going to bring a second iPad and just play the word, just play the word. But okay, that's that's a whole different thing. Okay, now now I'm just getting on a, a tangent. All right, but here we go. Now, if I look up, this is the Greek word. Now, remember, MacArthur in his commentary, he, he, he clearly implies he's giving you the definition of the word, and the implication is the word or, or gay, this, this Greek word, refers to the wrath of God, not to the anger of men. That's the implication in the commentary. There's no other way to interpret it, right? Now, if I look up the, um, the outlines of biblical usage, means anger. The natural disposition, temper, character, movement or agitation of the soul, impulse, desire, any violent emotion, but especially anger, anger, wrath, indignation, anger exhibited in punishment, hence used for punishment itself. Um, now, please note, that's none of that is how MacArthur described it. He didn't describe it. He didn't. He didn't give us anything like that. And now, if I go down here, it's used thirty-six times. It's used thirty-six times. And if I go down here, the first time it's used, Matthew three seven. All right, this one makes some sense. Um, but when uh, when he saw speaking of John the Baptist of, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, "O generation of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come?" All right, he's using it in reference to God's wrath. Um, that's Matthew three seven, Mark three five. And when he had looked around about them, uh, when he had looked around about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. 
speaking of Jesus. Okay, you can get the, the basic idea there. All right, um, let's continue to go down here. Um, it's used in Romans a lot. It's used in Romans. Uh, it's used in, oh wait, it's used in Ephesians 2, 3. Among whom also we all had our conversations in time past and the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. All right? So now we're the children of wrath, children who, who, who deserve the wrath of God. Okay, so far so good. So this would seem to support MacArthur's idea. Hey, it always refers to the wrath of God. All right? Let's go to Ephesians 4.31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you. Guess what Greek word is used there for anger? Oh yeah, it's the same Greek word. So it doesn't always refer to the wrath of God. It can refer to anger. It can refer to sinful anger. It can refer to godly wrath. It has a wide range of meanings. It only took me three minutes to look that up. Now the reason I knew the commentary, and I'm going back to the, the dining room table, the reason I knew the commentary was wrong is because I'd already done all that work on the Greek word myself. So when, again, let me go back to how he describes it. Wrath refers to a settled, determined indignation, not to the momentary emotional and often uncontrolled anger to which human beings are prone. And look what he does here. Next to the word wrath, he has the Greek word for wrath. Next to the word anger, he has thumos, a different Greek word, implying that when we read of the uncontrolled anger of people, we get a different Greek word in the New Testament. Not true. Not true. We, I just demonstrated to you that is not true. The same Greek word used for the wrath of God can also be used to refer to the anger of men that they are to put away. That is wrong. And, 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 I, and I didn't just go through all, I think I said 36 uses. I didn't go through all 36 to demonstrate how often that is the case. Why would MacArthur's commentary give a completely inaccurate understanding of it? MacArthur knows Greek 50 billion times better than me. He will forget more about Greek than I will ever know. If I was to study Greek from this day right now until my death, MacArthur would still know more than me. He knows the Greek language. So what is that nonsense? Is that because MacArthur did that or because he preached something about the word, uh, the, the, the Greek word, orge, wrath? He, he used that Greek word in a sermon and whoever the editor was, did they just kind of, you know, bypass some of the things he said and gave a simple explanation? But that's, see, that's misleading to any Christian who reads that. The same Greek word is used to refer to the, the, the anger of men that they're not, that they are to put away with, put away from them, a sinful kind of anger. So now, so what he's doing here, he's not actually interpreting you what how this word is being used in Romans 1.18. He's just giving you a theological understanding of God's wrath versus the sinful anger of men. But the problem is he's making you think his his explanation is coming from the definition of these two Greek words, and that is not accurate. I would like to see how thumos is used throughout the New Testament. I'd have to look that one up as well. 
But that's just an example. How, why would he do? Why would he do that? I, I don't know. But it drives me absolutely crazy that that happens, and it happens way too often in commentaries. It happens way too often. And that is something that you need to be, you need to, you need to pick that up and you need to figure, wait a minute, that is not necessarily the right way to, to look at that. And we, we definitely, um, we definitely have to see this. Now let's continue. There's one more thing I want to point out. All right, right after that sentence, we read it again. He gives the Greek word, arge, I think that's how it was pronounced. I don't remember how it was pronounced now, but you heard it. Um, wrath refers to a settled, determined indignation, not to the momentary, emotional, and often uncontrolled anger, thumos, to which human beings are prone. Okay, again, none of that comes from any of the basic Greek tools that we can use. Now, he may be, he may be right that orge typically refers to the wrath of God, but he, he doesn't, there's no explanation here. In other words, here's the thing. You may think I'm getting too upset about it, but here's the thing. Some new Christian or some pastor who doesn't do due diligence they stand from the pulpit and they preach that. That's not accurate. That's not accurate and it should bother you. Now, let's continue. God's attributes are balanced in divine perfection. If he had no righteous anger and wrath, he would not be God, just as surely as he would not be God without his gracious love. He perfectly hates. He perfectly hates, just as he perfectly loves. Um, perfectly loving righteousness and perfectly hating evil. Right. So he's making a. He's giving us a theology lesson about God. That God perfectly hates, just as he perfectly loves. Perfectly loving righteousness and perfectly hating evil. Then he start, He opens a parentheses and he places Psalm forty-five seven. And Hebrews 1.9, and then he closes parentheses. So he uses Psalm 45.7 as a proof text that God hates and God loves. He perfectly hates and he perfectly loves. He perfectly, he perfectly loving righteousness and perfectly hating evil. He uses Psalm 45.7 as one of the proof texts for that dogmatic declaration. He makes a dogmatic declaration about God. He gives us Psalm 45.7. He doesn't quote Psalm 45.7. He just places the reference inside parentheses. So you, now, guess what? New Christians will look at that and go, oh, Psalm 45.7 teaches that God perfectly hates evil and perfectly loves righteousness. All right? Some pastor will stand from the pulpit, say those exact words, quote MacArthur, may not even tell people they're quoting MacArthur, God perfectly hates, God perfectly loves, he perfectly loves righteousness, and he perfectly hates evil. Psalm 45 verse 7 teaches us that, says it in that pastoral, you know, authoritative voice, everyone sitting in the pew writes it down in their notes, everyone goes home. Does anyone bother to look up 40, Psalm 45.7 to see if that's accurate? What do you think? Do you think we should? Oh, I've got a Bible here. Let's go to Psalm 45.7. It may be 100% accurate. It may not be, but let's take a look. Psalm 45.7. I'm not 100% sure what we're going to find, but we'll see. 
But again, I just hate a commentary that doesn't give me the scripture, right? But because they're making a dogmatic assertion. Now, they may be right, but we'll see. All right, let's see if we can figure out what's going on here, all right? We got Psalm 45. Um, I'm just, I'm just going to start reading in, in verse 1. They want us to go to verse 7, but I'm trying to figure out what's going on here because you want to be fair to the text, right? Psalm 45, verse 1. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. All right? So the psalmist here, all right, Wants to uh, he, he's, uh, he wants to speak of the things which I have made touching the king. Now, what king is he referring to here? Is he referring to God? Is he referring to David? Who, who is he, who's he referring to here? Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore, therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Stop right there. Verse 2 is key. It's not talking about God. It's talking about a human king, and he's saying that, that this king is fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips, therefore God hath blessed thee forever. He's speaking about a human king, and he's saying God has blessed them. There's no denying what's happening here. Verse 3, gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall, shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the, in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. All right? Now, that one... Okay, gets a little confusing there, but we get in. But according to verse one and according to verse two, we have to at least go with the understanding that the context here is this psalmist is speaking about a king. Now he is speaking of him at times in a very lofty way, but he's talking about a king. Now let's see what happens in verse seven. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Stop right there. There, that, that's it. It proves it. There, MacArthur is arguing that that verse is arguing that God loves righteousness and God hates wickedness. But let's read all of Psalm 45, 7. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Now, wait a minute. Is, is, he, is, he, is, is MacArthur trying to say this is a reference to Jesus? Now, the psalmist seems to be speaking of a king. Is this a, are we going to say this is prophetic? What, what is he doing? Clearly, the psalmist is saying, here's this person. Let me read it again. Thou, whoever this king is that he's referring to, you love righteousness, you hate wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Oh, look at uh, verse 9. Look at verse 9. Uh, oh, well, look at verse 8. All thy garments smell of myrrh um, um, and, um, and of ivory palaces, whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. All right. Now, now wait a minute. This is clearly speaking of a king. 
This is speaking of a king. In fact, you just read the whole chapter. The psalmist is speaking of a king. Is there some possibly prophetic passage uh, referring to the Messiah? Maybe. But you're going to be very careful to make an argument that Psalm 45 verse 7 is teaching me that God uh, loves uh, righteousness and hates wickedness because the psalmist here seems to be referring to a king and he's talking about a king and because this king loves righteousness and hates wickedness God thy God the God of the king hath anointed thee because of his character God has anointed him that's the implication that's not how it, it's stated here let me read it again God's attributes are balanced in divine perfection if he had no righteous anger and wrath, he would not be God, just as surely as he would not be God without his gracious love. He perfectly hates, uh, he perfectly hates just as he perfectly loves. Perfectly loving righteousness, perfectly hating evil, open parentheses, Psalm 45.7. Psalm 45.7, you can't use that to prove this point. Now, they also cite Hebrews 1.9. I'm hoping, and now I don't, I'm not, I'm not a, I was, I was, I already had great doubts about Psalm 45. All right, Hebrews 1.9 may make a little bit, oh no, okay, I see what they did here. I see what they did here. All right. Oh, well, this gets into our whole discussion about how New Testament writers use Old Testament passages. Um, verse 7. Well, where, we, we, where, we, where do we have to go here? Hebrews 1.6. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. And all the angels, he saith, who maketh the angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of thy righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows." All right, so it's making a reference to Psalm 45, and it seems to be applying it to Christ. All right, now, is that a, reinterpret a reinterpretation of what was going on in, in Psalms? This, this deals with everything we've been talking about at Victory Baptist Church for six sermons. Six sermons are more than six. We've talked about how do you interpret how a New Testament writer uses an Old Testament passage. Psalm 45.7, see, well, there's no explanation here. So this is what happens. He throws these two references out as to support it. Some person just picks up, like, you've got to go figure out what's going on. The, the writer of Hebrews is using Psalm 45, verse 7, either just to draw an analogy, just to draw a parallel, or he's reinterpreting Psalm 45, 7. This almost implies that the writer of Hebrews is reinterpreting Psalm 45, 7. See, like, but this, it doesn't explain anything. And then it just moves right along, moves right along. So guess what this commentary would do? This commentary would actually lead to more confusion and actually lead to a possibly mishandling of God's word. That is what this commentary would do. All right? That... The, the, the Psalm 45 passage may not be, you may not perceive any of these things to be a big deal, but here's what I will say. This is a simple example. I sat down working on Romans 1.18. I pull out a commentary and literally within minutes, I'm like, wait a minute. Based off all my work on, on the Greek word for wrath, 
This commentary completely misrepresents what's going on here and seems to imply that the word for wrath in Romans 1.18 refers to God's wrath and God's wrath is different than man's anger and then there's a different word, Greek word for man's anger. And then when you start looking, you're like, wait a minute, I have here um, it being used, in fact, here, here's that, Colossians 3.8, but now you also put off all these, anger. That's the same Greek word used in Romans 1.18 for God's wrath. It can be used for sinful anger, or it can be used for godly wrath. Now, the translators, and the King James translates one wrath and one's anger. I don't know if they oh, if they do that every single time. Again, it's used, how many times? Let me go back up. I walked back into my study. 36 times. I'd have to go through all 36 uses, usage of that Greek word to determine how it's actually used. That commentary is misleading, almost downright false, and will only cause pastors to say things from the pulpit that are incorrect and people in the pew to believe it. Then, utilizing Psalm 45.7 as a proof text that God loves righteousness and hates wickedness is questionable. He does throw in Hebrews 1.9, but Hebrews 1.9 then, then this, is, this is what it leads to. Oh, Hebrews 1.9 is reinterpreting Psalm 45. Um, I think it's, yeah, 45.7. And now it leads people to, miss, to possibly handle um, the, old, the Psalm 45.7 in an incorrect manner. Because you're just going, well, Hebrews uses it that way, so now I'm going to interpret Psalm 45.7 that way and completely ignore the grammatical, historical means of hermeneutics. It, it's just... It, Commentaries, I think, actually lead to more confusion than, than they do good. I really do. I, I am convinced of that. What, will, what would clarify so much confusion within Christianity is if Christians were actually taught to study the Bible on their own. Now, I don't hate, I want to make this very clear, I don't hate commentaries. They're great reference tools, but they're tools. They're tools you pull out after you've done all the necessary work so that you're not misled or confused by a commentary. That means doing observation of the text, doing a Bible study method, one of the 12, right? Then doing all the necessary work in the original language, Bible dictionaries, Bible encyclopedias, cross-referencing, and once you've done all of that, then you pull out the commentaries. Then you pull out the commentaries. Because when you've done all that work, as soon as you see something in a commentary, that you will immediately go, wait a minute. As soon as he gave that so-called definition of wrath, I knew it was false. I had it right there on my notes, on paper. That's not, that's not, that's not, no, what? What? That's all I can say. And that's why I screamed out, I hate Bible commentaries! Because it's misleading! And it should bother you because you don't want Christians buying books that actually misleads them and gives them a wrong understanding of Scripture. That should bother you. And it should bother you that many pastors literally take their sermons from the commentary of their favorite pastor. You've got to do the independent work. All right? Now, uh, I will throw this out there. I, I, I said I was going to just give this to you and not, and not tell you, but I decided to just go all in here. Um, I would tell you to this. For the members of Victory Baptist Church, for everyone who listened to all of our sermons about how New Testament writers uh, use Old Testament scripture, 
Um, there's six of them. If you can't find those sermons, you should contact, well, this is what you need to do. Get the VBC 66 app. Go to the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store. VBC stands for Victory Baptist Church, the number 66. VBC 66. Get that. Um, go to the Sermon and Bible Study Notes section. You should find everything. You'll find all my notes. And uh, you should definitely try to grasp the, the, the hermeneutical difficulties that arrive arise, that would be, and they arrive, they arise, they arrive from reading the New Testament and seeing how New Testament writers cite Old Testament passages, just like in Hebrews. But to everyone who has been listening, and for the members of Victory Baptist Church, you work on Hebrews. Hebrews 1.9, Psalm 45.7. Tell me what's going on. You've got seven different options. Figure it out, and let me know what you discover. Let me know what you think. I know we're still working on what John... Uh, I think it's John 17, verse 24. I've, I've studied so many different things. Yeah, John 17, I believe it's verse 24 or verse 22. Maybe it's John 17, 22 um, is the passage. Yeah, John 17, 22. That's the passage we're working on this week. Um, but we we can do more than one thing. Yeah, we can. So work on Hebrews 1, 9 and its use of Psalm 45, 7. Is it just using, hey, you know, is it reinterpreting it? Is it trying to tell us that Psalm 45 was a uh, a a prophetic passage? Because you got to be careful there. Because read, here's what I would challenge you to do. Read all of Psalm 45. Not every single thing there is a reference to Jesus. I, I don't think I don't think there's any way to make it work. So it, what, did, this is what I think this is what is happening. The writer of Hebrews is taking language that was written to praise the king in Psalm 45, and applying some of those ideas to Christ. I think that's the idea. I could be, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Um, I, I would have to do some work on that as well. But here's the thing. I'll end with this. Bible commentaries can be useful, but they cannot be a replacement for you learning to study the Bible on your own. You've got to listen to that. And if there's a pastor listening to me, please do your own work. Don't just rely on a commentary because you're doing your people a disservice. You're doing your people a disservice. Study the text. I know it requires work and effort, and it can be frustrating. And there's some Sundays you may have to rely on a commentary. I understand that. Sometimes trying to get sermons ready, things are not going well, and you're like, I need a commentary here, and I'm going to use this. I understand that, right? But make it the predominant practice that you're doing your best to study. And you know what? If you haven't done all the necessary study, just have the church work with you. Everyone grab a Bible dictionary. Everyone pull out the Greek uh, interlinear. Let's do this together, okay? Have them work through it together. I know if you do that in some churches, they look at you like you're crazy. But uh, in my church, at least the people are obviously crazy as I am because they keep coming back. So we'll see. But all right, I'll stop right there. This is a little impromptu rant on why I hate Bible commentaries. But I did a little bit more there than just rant. I tried to give you some examples. One example really bothers me. The second one, it still bothers me because just throwing those two scriptures in parentheses is absolutely confusing. And right now my cat is losing her mind. She's, she's, for those who don't know, I have a cat who's literally like 175,000 years old. And that's, that's, you know, I'm using literally in a, a wrong way because I'm not being literal. I'm using hyperbole. But yes, it's an old, old cat 
I don't even know where she is. She's named after the famous Japanese baseball player who played for the Seattle Mariners, Ishiro. And um, I don't know where she is. She's now senile, blind, crazy. Um, she, uh, she's got problems. But yeah, she's, I don't know where she is screaming. And my dog is trying to find her to, to kill her. So right now, what you're, if we continue to listen, we're going to hear a- animal, animals attacking one another. And uh, that would be too violent uh, for children who are too young to listen to a dog try to kill a cat. All right. Now my dog's got issues. So I'm going to stop. Thank you for listening to this impromptu Bible study. I don't know if it benefited you. It benefited me because it got me thinking. Now it got me thinking about Hebrews 1.9 and Psalm 45.7. Um, um, at, when, I, when I first saw them use Psalm 45.7, I immediately had one thought, and then we started working through that. Now I got a different thought. But, you know, yeah. So it, I, I learned something, and now I've got, I've got some things to figure out, and hopefully you do too as well. And hopefully now you've got a little warning when it comes to Bible commentaries. All right. Everyone have a great night. Thank you for listening. And if you need to contact me, newsif at yahoo.com. Get the VBC 66 app and please tell someone else today about the VBC 66 app. I want those numbers to go up even more. Up a little up. And yeah, the cat's now yelling at me. I want the uh, numbers to go way up. I mean, I would like, I'd like, you know, by the end of July to have another thousand downloads. That would be wonderful. So do what you can to promote it. All right, everyone have a great night. God bless. Mm-hmm.